actually think you'd have to change the managers, not only their comp, but I, th so interestingly enough, your idea about quality control and you know managers being responsible for quality control, I actually think that that is the current model and that's actually the challenge. Because what I think for a lot of sales organizations, they started to look as a salesperson, not as a salesperson, there's like, hey, there's, there's you know, X number of sales seats. We, we slot a cog in there. They should be able to follow some program. We're gonna give them X number of leads or you know, however they're gonna develop their pipeline. And they should hit this percentage and you know, we'll get X amount of revenue from them. So hey, if we wanna you know, increase revenue, we either have to have more headcount or you know, we're just gonna you know, double quota for them. But then, you know, as a sales manager, they're just looking at it as a, how do I optimize this machine versus how do I actually grow the success of this individual? Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was David J.P. Fisher, D. Fish, as I call him. And David is president of Rockstar Consulting, as well as an author and keynote speaker. Now, we start our conversation today talking about DFish's journey into sales. Started like well, a fair number of people selling Cutco knives, which is a fantastic experience for young people who want to get a taste of sales and selling. Uh, we talk about the importance of finding your own path in sales, right? how to sell in a way that's aligned with who you are, your values and your character. We also dig into the importance of win rate as the essential KPI of how you're doing in front of the buyer. Well, we get into all that and much, much more, but before we get to David, I wanna remind you to subscribe to this podcast, wherever you listen to it, iTunes, Spotify. I also wanna remind you to check out my latest book, Sell Without Selling Out. It's a modern human-centric framework for increasing your win rates and shortening decision cycles without using the salesy behaviors that buyers hate. It's available everywhere you shop for books, online, and in stores. Okay, let's jump into it. David, Thank you the so show. much for having me back. Super excited to be here. Oh, good. Well, so I don't have the big news. You have the big news because you've got we a do. newborn. Number two. Number two. Yeah. Number two, and so uh, the you know details. he's a beautiful baby boy. He's two and a half weeks old. Ferris John, uh, which thank I love you, the name, thank by you. The way. Yeah, there was yeah. two that we were uh, picking between, and uh, we decided to wait until the baby showed up. We did the same thing with our first son. Of course, this time the baby showed up, and I thought he was a Ferris, and my wife uh, thought he was the other one. <laughs> and so, we uh, uh, he he did not get officially named until 20 minutes before we left the hospital because we had to fill out the birth certificate. Huh? But there are times yeah. when having a, a background in sales uh, is useful. So, oh, so you thought, okay, you thought that was so it's sort of appropriate. You're in Chicago, you got a boy named Ferris, Ferris Fisher's uh, Day you know, Off. And, and um, I can we we live one, one, one town away from the, uh, the, the home of the fictional Ferris Bueller. So yes, this is, this is his hood for sure. It works. <laughs> a good movie to watch yeah, anytime you can. So um, yeah, well, that's exciting. So you're probably yeah. not getting much sleep yeah. these days. So we are sort of <laughs> commiserate about our lack of sleep before we started recording. <laughs> I don't have the same excuse you do. I'm just, uh, just uh, too much travel this week, I think. Was, it's a completely excuse. valid excuse. The only difference is you get to not travel and rest up. I don't have that luxury for at least a little while. <laughs> no, no, you're, I'm going to have uninterrupted, uninterrupted sleep tonight. That you are not. Correct. Yes, that's true. <laughs> you know, but you chose that life. I, I, I remember back in the day when I had... Uh, yeah, unfortunately, we timed it so that uh, one learned how to sleep <laughs> before the other came along. So, yeah. It's worth it. I've been told yeah. it's worth well, it in How's the wife doing? <laughs> Your wife's doing fine. Your mom's great. doing fine. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a cliche uh, that you hear, and I think it, you need a little bit of age to really appreciate it. We're all healthy, you know, and as long as everybody's healthy, you know, yeah. that... Uh, the, everything else you can fix and figure out and every, you know, but as, as long as you have that, as long as you have yeah. your health, you're good. And everybody's healthy, knock on wood. 
So we're great. And remind me of your Ferris's older brother's name? Liam, that's right. Yeah, two great names in the family. And how is Liam? You taking know what? So we're far? super lucky. He's loving being a big brother. He uh, the other day we caught him singing "Twinkle Twinkle Little Star" to his little brother, trying to get him to go to sleep. So we're like, <laughs> "All right," you know. I I actually was trying to to move the baby nice. to another room, uh, to my office, to take him with me. And Liam goes, "No, no, Daddy, he stays here." <laughs> and I was like, "All right, good. You're already learning to be protective of your 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 baby brother. That's a good sign." Yeah. And then the pendulum swings at one point and becomes the baby brother's chief torturer, yeah. and that's it. Yeah. yeah, I've got two brothers. That's how it works, you know. Nobody picks on my brother but me. Okay. Yeah, well, no, let's we'll see. Yeah, I was the youngest of four, so I was on the right. I was the <laughs> you got the worst end of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, older one older brother in particular that uh, took particular interest in in uh, torturing me through. Good chunk of my life. So, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. it won't be that bad. Well, as I tell people, it's, you know, resilience, right? That's where you, you develop. Know, you got to get toughened up somehow. <laughs> yeah, he, <laughs> he made sure. So, um, so yeah, yeah. So, what's 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 new? I mean, with you, I, I was uh, read the article you'd post. You'd post on LinkedIn this morning that I wanted to chat about. Um, because we touched on before, but you, among many people, got your start selling cut. I was knives. one of those Cutco people, yeah, yeah. So it's 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 been interesting. And oh, I think you, I think you uh, might be referencing a, a post I made about the fact that uh, uh, one of the things that I think helped me very early on in my sales career was feeling very comfortable selling uh, exactly what somebody needed and no more, no less, which allowed me to be very persuasive when I thought, you know, there's a fit and I knew I had that conviction, but I also was very comfortable realizing, hey, this maybe isn't a good fit. And so I'm not going to try to, I'm not going to try mm -hmm. to push or, you know, uh, you know, to, to, to use your parlance, I wasn't going to sell without, you know, by selling out. Uh, so I, I, right. Ah, You're well, welcome. Thanks for um, the <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that that allowed me to, you know, uh, be, I, I think, a little more persuasive because I, you know, for lack of a better saying, I was I was right with myself. Right. I never walked out of a, a, yeah. a, a sales presentation, even back. You know, this is, you know, when I was younger, I had more hair. Five, ten, I always felt confident. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is such an important thing to think about for. A seller standpoint is, is yeah when do you reach that point where you feel because a, a mix this confidence but it's really a mixture of confidence with yourself and yeah with the product and service you're selling as well um but i still remember you know hitting that that point there's always change because i was <laughs> jumping into new things relatively quickly but um but i do think you learn to serve you find like you're in the right situation with product and service, then it's okay to be yourself. It's okay to to not sort of have to feel like you have to put on this sales yeah. air. Um, and I think that's a hard hard barrier for many sellers to cross is, is feeling comfortable <laughs> with themselves. I, I would a hundred percent agree. I mean, one of the things that I think is always. I mean, it, it goes back and forth. One of the things I've loved about a selling career, especially an entrepreneurial selling career, is it really is a place to practice finding out who you are, right? It, it, is, a, it is definitely a path of self-awareness. Uh, you know, when you're dealing with so many people, you're dealing with the ups and the downs, you, you, you kind of have a, a forum or a you know, playground where you get to you know, practice this, this idea of finding out who you are. And then... In, a, in the cyclical nature of it, the more you find out who you are, the better you are at selling, right? So mm -hmm. you know, it, it, it does yeah. kind of make you um, look in the, sales is a profession that makes you look in the mirror, you know, often on a daily basis. Who am I? How am I gonna act? How am I gonna treat people? Um, and and I gonna, am I gonna be comfortable with that? Well, but it requires, to that point, a certain self-awareness that Clearly, lots of people still have a hard time sort of crossing that bridge to that point. It's because, you know, we see the sales behavior. The buyers talk about us making presentations on 
uh, customers this week and a client and um, team of sales leaders and and throwing up some stats from seeing from various reports and books and research about you know eighty percent of C-suite executives find no value in their interaction with sellers or uh, one I post about this week on LinkedIn that uh, came from some research uh, in a book called Strikingly Different Selling from Jennifer Colosimo that said, and this was research done across thousands of different uh, buyers, was uh, you know 42% of sellers, B2B sellers, are uh, unmemorable, <laughs> basically. Indistinguishable right. one from the other. And so virtually half, and for me, that's the half that is trying to be someone other than themselves, right? They're putting on the salesy right. act, right? Uh, I think, oh gosh, if you do this for any period of time, at least for me, it seemed like, God, you have to go make that transition to saying, look, I feel comfortable with who I am as sort of a person and in this role that I am. Otherwise, yeah, how do you do it on a day-to-day basis? <laughs> I, I, that's a wonderful question. I don't know how you do. And, and I'll actually bring something back to, uh, to your book. Not that you need more plugs. It's your own show, but I'll totally plug it. If you're listening to this and have not read Annie's book yet, go go read it. I I really enjoyed it. But one thing that struck to me kind of just on a a larger scale is that one of the things that you were really talking about throughout the book is, you know, the idea of being yourself, right? So how do you sell without selling out? You you Mm -hmm. are yourself. You're authentic with who you are. You're authentic on a human level and engaging in an empathetic uh, capacity with your prospects and, and clients. But that is actually the opposite of what the sales profession, and I'm going to put quotation marks there, has been doing over the last 20 years because the reality is you can't, uh, it's hard to scale authenticity, right? And so if you add a point I think you make uh, a number of times in the book is, you know, hey, do what's right for you, not necessarily what your, uh, your sales manager is or the sales trainer is trying to teach you mm-hmm. because right. sales right. programs, while not inherently bad, I think you have to actually learn a lot of them so you then can you know kind of integrate what works for you and what doesn't. But you know you don't want people to to kind of march to the beat of their own drummer. You're like just follow this program because we think it kind of is scalable. Now you and I I think would would disagree with that, but I think that's the mentality from a lot of these organizations. And by the way, it's very hard to develop self-awareness or actually the value for self-awareness if your larger context that you're in, if you are a young seller who has that first sales job and you just are getting this message from the people on high that, hey, you just gotta do this. Again, it's hard to, self-awareness is not an easy, not only an easy path, it's a, not an easy path to choose, I think. And that's why you, you get stats that half of sellers are unmemorable. Yeah. Well, I think that, <laughs> I agree 100%. I think that, that, I think the issue is that, for me, with that is, and it's, I use the word in the book, but it's, it's not being mm-hmm. intentional. I think, I think this is a part that's, that's really difficult for a lot of people in, in sales is to be, operate with intention about being themselves, about being of service to the buyer, about helping the buyer accomplish the things they need to accomplish in order to make a decision. Because to your very point, it oftentimes conflicts with what they believe they've been told about the process they need to follow and the steps they have to take and, and so on. And so, yeah, I think, I think we give mixed messages to a lot of sellers that, uh, comes for a variety of reasons, right? I think I, I think that we don't do a good enough job in general trying to help frontline managers, frontline sales managers, oftentimes who are mm-hmm. new at the roles, uh, understand what they can best do to help their sellers. And so in the absence of great guidance about what that is, they default to the right. process, right? Well, this is the this playbook. These are steps to go do. Um, if you don't follow this, I'm going to be nervous. <laughs> Right, because I then I can't say I can't justify to somebody that hey I let you do something right. different because I don't have the confidence to be able to say this is what you sure go ahead and do that and I have confidence to you you might have, you might have done a horrible demo but at, at least it was the demo that you were supposed to do 
right? <laughs> it didn't work and it was horrible and you know we lost the, the sale, but at least it's the thing that you learned that's in this playbook we developed you know, two years ago. Well, that's that's easier for some managers. That is easier. For I some think it's managers, easier for right? most managers is to take that. Up. <laughs> I, you know, yeah. I, and I think we even touched on this the last time we talked. Um, you know, thinking about guidance, and you said something I think really insightful there—the idea of of how we are guiding and, and or not guiding our our frontline salespeople. You know, as, as somebody who's been a sales coach for you know. I know I look super young, but you know, for over two decades, I mean, one of the the right, no. part of my secret sauce has always been um, that idea, of, and I love we said that idea of intention or that idea of deliberateness. And one of the things that I've mm-hmm. often talked to you know um, coaches about is not as is using, for example, accountability or using the conversation, the coaching conversation. Mm-hmm as an excuse, as a way to get intentional about your activities, right? Because I think mm-hmm. uh, when you are intentional and then you try something, again, we're using this word intentional a lot, but if you're being very deliberate, hey, I'm going to try this maybe different sales approach. It may work, it may not, mm-hmm. but that. But if I was deliberate about it, at least then I can then figure out if it works or not, right? I wasn't just muddling along. It was like, I'm right. de- deliberately trying this. Holy crap, it worked. Okay, so let me examine that. Or <laughs> I, I'm gonna deliberately do this. It did not work. <laughs> Let us re- re-examine this. And well, and I think that examination, that level of self-examination you're talking about, is is that you know, inherent to yeah. being intentional about things. Is that yeah, I'm doing this for a reason. As opposed to just I'm I'm taking this step. I'm acting this way. I'm, I'm presenting this way. I'm having this level of interaction this way just because that's right. the way I was told to do it. Uh, and I think, by the way, yeah. if you do that, I mean, it's so going back to our original point, like if you do, if you can do that on, on the sales process, and I think a lot of sellers aren't given that support, so they have to go and find it on their own, which can be hard. But if they go through that process, then the great thing is you can start doing that in your own, like the personal side of your life. Right. I mean, that's where I think that self-awareness comes in. Right. Sure. Um, just being like, hey, wait, am I being intentional in my conversations with my significant other with you know friends or family am i being you know intentional with how i approach religion or spirituality or my emotional health my mental health um it's 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 wonderfully self-reinforcing that way but to your point it's also if you don't start that process you're just dead in the water yeah so that really then makes question is is and this conversation i had a number of people okay what comes first, or chicken and the egg, right? This is because we have to we have to uh, enable frontline sales managers to feel comfortable to give their sellers a level of trust and autonomy to yeah to become self aware, to act, you know, to learn what's going to work for them, to experiment yeah. constantly, and and this I said this is the difficult part, right? Is and I think I certainly am empathize, I guess, to some degree with, with frontline managers that feel the pressure to deliver, but they too have to be intentional about what they're doing. And it works all the way up and down the line is, is if you're a frontline manager and you're feeling uncomfortable with the way that you're being managed and directed, then what are you going to do about it? Right? I mean, you right. can comply uh, and be unhappy and unsuccessful. Or if you think there's perhaps something that's a better way that you would prefer to approach it, yeah, do you approach it with your boss? Or do you go find a situation where you can right. do what you need to do? There, there's a lot of opportunities out there right now. Um, that's for sure. I, I think to a very, on a very practical level, I mean, one thing that, that I've done in my career, I've seen other people do successfully, and something that I counsel people is uh, incremental change is really powerful. And I think we often mm-hmm. either dismiss that idea or we we acknowledge it, but don't really act. And we go, oh yeah, yeah, incremental. That's that's great. That's you know, um, I, I remember an early. I think this is a Tony Robbins quote or some. Who, who knows? I, I heard it early in my career, but the idea, um, what is it? You we overestimate what we can change in a year, but underestimate what we can change in ten uh, years. Uh, and, just, mm-hmm, just, mm-hmm. and I, like and, I mean, the, I like the time scale isn't what's important, but this idea that we're like, 
oh, I'm going to change things completely now uh, versus going and, right. and, and if you know, you're a sales manager, I actually was talking to somebody about this recently. Like what happens if you're in a situation where maybe you're not super comfortable with how you're being managed or uh, in this case, it was, you know, if you're not completely comfortable with what you're selling because of things that are not under your control, like mm-hmm. do you stay, do you go? What right. happens if you like, hey, I'd like to go, but I have financial responsibilities. I've got, you know, a mortgage, a family, stuff like that. To, that's where I think that the idea of being incremental in making changes, while very unsexy mm-hmm. and, and in the short term unsatisfying, at least starts moving you in the right direction, right? You know, if I, if I was a sales manager who was getting pressure from on high to manage in a certain way, and you're like, hey, that's not necessarily working, it's not me, and it's actually not helping my salespeople. I don't think you can necessarily go to your boss and be like, hey, screw you, I'm going to do everything my way. But I do think there's ways, you know, for example, one of the things I think most sales managers don't do is coach, um, like really coach. I mean, that's kind right. of a given, right? Yeah, data seems to. But I mean, right. to as much as, as, as possible, and the idea of going, hey, we're going to, like, if you're a sales manager, it's like, hey, I need to, like, really help my salespeople get better. I don't feel I've got a lot of time, but the, the thing that I would tell them if I was working with them is to go, great, set up 20 minutes a week at a specific time with each salesperson, right? And depend, I mean, if you've got like 20, this is, is tough, but you know, I'd, we can all do five to seven and go, hey, with each of those people, pick one activity that they want to get better at, right? So, I mean, here, let's be really tactical. Mm-hmm. Say one thing that they want to be better at that we're going to talk about every week for 20 minutes. And we're going to like, you know, when I talk about accountability with frontline salespeople, I'm always like, it's got to be answerable with a yes or a no, right? Like, mm-hmm. meaning, you know, meaning. we, I want to make more phone calls. I want to do more outreach. I want to be better at this. Right. I can't answer that. More is not a yes or no. I want to get into the office at right. 7.30 every day. So I do my pre-work and I'm on the phone or whatever. I mean, whatever your sales role is at nine. And then I can say yes or no. Right. And what's really interesting, though, sure. is I think that people mistake accountability because then, you know, the next week, let's say the sales rep doesn't do that. They go, well, OK, they didn't do it. Like, that's horrible. And I go, no, that's just that's just a fact. But if we were intentional about it and that and again, it didn't happen, then we can go, why? Right. And if you have that conversation with somebody every week, even just for 20 minutes, they're going to get better. Right. They're going to improve. Or, by the way, they're not. And that, that, that's telling you something else too, well, right? Not, right. Well, and I think one thing that that's, I'm hearing as you're talking about, which I think is we don't express out loud enough. I'm just sort of thinking about this because I sort of, you're watching your expression as well as you talked about it. It's this, this idea that to some degree we want to please the people we, we work for, right? Not just we want to be hit the number, <laughs> but we also want to, we want to please yeah. people too, um, and that's there's some motivation in there. But I think what what for me is is you know I see sort of mixed up so much is just yeah you want to please people, but you also have to be you know operating in alignment with what you the way you think you want to operate. And this is for me as part of intention is is maybe I had the great good fortune early in my career to serve. Sort of, have this moment where it sort of struck me as like, and I tell write about this in the book is, is yeah, I can't act <laughs> this way, right? The way they were being trained, the way I want to act is like, you know, I just can't do that. But I still want to do the job and I want to learn. And I knew that really almost from the beginning is I was going to, have to sort of navigate right. my own path in that. But at the same time, I did want to make my sales manager happy hit numbers. and, and hit, hit my job. numbers. Uh, <laughs> you know. Make some money. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. There's there's always this little push pull, right? You well, experience. It, but I think. That, oh no, sorry. Like sorry. I think you're absolutely right, and you just even said something like, "I don't think we express this enough." It's not even just this topic, but just the. There's a lot that doesn't get expressed in sales conversations, and and what I'm I, maybe specifically like internal, you know, not selling. Like we're really talking about right. coaching and management. Coaching conversation. Like right. yeah. You know, I've actually always found, for me personally, um, 
you know, and I was a really horrible sales manager when I first started, right? I mean, I definitely fell under the, 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 yeah, the, well, we all, but a very, stific, we very stereotypical, really top salesperson got into more of a management leadership role and, and just was like, just do this. Yeah. I mean, this is easy. Why aren't you doing it? So definitely had to get beat over the head. Um, and just because I was stubborn enough, I just kept at it. I was like, I'm going to figure this out. Uh, but one of the things that I, I found was very valuable for me and, and kind of is, is part of all of what we're saying here is this idea of being forthright and truthful, not only with yourself, but now we're talking about, you know, like in a coaching conversation with the person, like saying, hey, you're really struggling with this. What's up? Why? Like, let's, let's not, you know, pretend. Uh, you know, I've, I've had salespeople tell me like, I, I mean, the best, and you don't always want this is, but when they're like, I actually don't like this job. <laughs> and you're like, okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not that they're being told to do it the wrong way. There's like, they just, they're in the wrong place. You're like, awesome, fit. right? Let's, right. let's find a way to, to transition you into the next role, you know, so we can still shake hands at the end and be friends. But that comes from being honest and forthright in a conversation. I also know, I, I've seen this situation where you're like, that person should have left three years ago, but they can't be honest with their manager. Their manager's like mm -hmm. not being honest with them. Um, so, it, and this goes back to a self-awareness, not from a salesperson's perspective, but then from sales leadership perspective, like you want to be a good sales manager, a sale, good sales coach, you know, what are you doing to, for you to be self-aware? Even to be able to say, hey, I'm really frustrated with you right now because of, you know, I feel you're not doing what we talked about, but that's on me, that my frustration's on me. Let's talk about this, right? When I think some of that self-awareness for me really comes from the fact that that a hard thing for sales managers to learn is to let go. Right. And, and, you know, it gets back mm -hmm. to this idea of trust, really. Trust that people will do what they need to do, the people are working for you, you know, if you give them good, you know, enough good guidance direction that, you know, I always like to sort of create frameworks for people and say, hey, within this framework, it's really up to you how right. you're going to operate beyond that, right? For me, if the people that took the initiative within that, and because I, yeah, I love to coach, love to, for me, I, I liked, um, I liked knowing everything. I said, I don't, I don't like to be a micromanager, but I liked knowing that people knew everything, right? So if I was sure. challenging people in coaching, it was just not to get explicit in direction, but just to make sure they they were asking the right questions and they they understood as much as possible. Um, but then, yeah, you let them go to say, look, at some point they're going to do something and you know you're going to see it. You're going to say, okay, if they go do that, they're going to they're going to ruin this deal, <laughs> they're going to lose it or whatever. And, and I think that's a hard thing for most managers. And I, I learned it early on from a really good manager who was, <laughs> he was prepared to let right. people fail. Right? He could have told them, no, 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 do this. Instead, it was, well, tell me, why would you, why would you do that? Let's, let's get into this. What, you know, what situations you're seeing? Uh, you know, what help do you need from me on this? <laughs> and let people sort of problem solve. And sometimes you have to let people learn through... Failure. One of the best ways to learn how to deal with uh, an objection, for example, in sales, is to uh, not be able to answer that objection and watch that big sale walk out the door, so to speak. Right? You'll 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 learn how to respond the right way for next time. Right, but as a manager, it's sometimes you talk oh, yeah. to you're coaching somebody, and instead of being a helicopter parent equivalent and saying, "Look, I'm going to fix this," is yeah, I. I think one of the things that, that helped me be successful as managers, the lesson I learned from that one man, previous manager was, oh, yeah, I, I, I learned it because I was watching the interaction of that person uh, that I learned from, this mentor with another employee, and sort of sitting in the meeting saying, oh, no, he's, oh, he's not going to tell them what to do because he knows that what they want to do is not right. I get it. He's going to let them go out and find this lesson out themselves. And it was a huge lesson for me is because I my yeah you know, my my temptation would just been to say, No, 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 you're completely wrong on this. Uh yeah, I've seen this many yeah. times, do this. No. Okay, if you think that's the right best approach to go, go try it. <laughs> it's 
I love that. And it's, I think you nailed it on the head. It's trust, right? It's, well, I think there's two things. I think there's be, be willing to trust people and trust is not, I'm going to trust you to do the right thing or say the right thing all the time. I'm going to trust you to move through that process and, um, you know, hopefully do the right thing. And if, and if you do the wrong thing to learn from it, I think that also gets to something right. also that's, I, I don't know what you're saying. Maybe we've lost a bit in sales is kind of that long-term commitment to the people we do work with and, and, and have, you know, mm, as, as managers. managers. Yeah. I mean, definitely you can even say that, you know, as a salesperson managing up, but you know, if you look at somebody and you're like, Hey, I want you to be successful here. I will do everything I can for you to be successful here. I want you to have a long and and storied career here, right? Acknowledge, mm -hmm. yes, there's a there's a lot of unknown to life. That then you can have that trust, right? Then you can say, hey, yes, you might lose this one sale, but it's okay as long as we learn for the next five. Um, and and I think that goes mm -hmm. to even some of the stuff we've seen over the last, you know, and it's been around for a while, but definitely in the last, let's say, I don't know, 10, 15 years where it's like, hey, I need to get my number this this quarter, right, this week, and I will burn, I mean, as salespeople, that's why I think you you get a lot of that behavior, whatever I can do to get that job, uh, that order in now, that deal done today, even if, you know, I, right. I'm burning bridges or, hey, I get that one one sale and I burn the bridges compared with nine others. No, being being super salesy yeah. just to get it. And, it, and yeah. it goes and it goes, I guess my point is it goes up the, the chain though. You know, if you, if you know you're going to oh, sure. be committed to the success of an individual long-term, you can let them make mistakes. You can not have to micromanage them a little bit. Um, but that, I mean, that's mm -hmm. to your point that goes all the way to the chain, right? So you have to know that, you know, upper management and leadership is saying, Hey, we're committed to you and that doesn't always happen. So. Well, I mean, it raises a question, I, which interests in your, your take on this is I, I think, uh, by and large, what I call salesy sales behaviors, bad sales behaviors start at the top and work their way down. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, that's just, that's not even sales behavior. That's, that's culture, right? I mean, that's, that's organizational culture. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, but people are so quick to want to blame the salesperson, right? Because who has the bad reputation? It's the individual salesperson, right? Oh, they're super salesy, right? I mean, even just in our you know, movies and TV shows, right? Yeah. It's the salesperson that's, well, they're that way because someone's allowing them to be that way. Right? Yeah. They work for someone. At the, at the, at and, the best, they're, they're and, allowing it. I think at the worst and what's often more co common is not that they're being allowed to do that. It's that they're encouraged or being forced to do that, right? Forced to do it, right. You know, I mean, yes, the salesperson, I, let's say they're doing some spammy sort of duplicitous outreach behavior. That's because the sales manager told them to do it and the marketing department helped them put it together, which is because their, their director of sales, VP of market, whatever, those people got together and they're like, we gotta hit these numbers. So whatever we can do this quarter. So mm -hmm. they, where did that come from? <laughs> that came from the C-suite, yeah. And then you could say that then came from, depending on the organization, shareholders. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's why I, one of my favorite examples of that is, is, you know, I get asked, you know, where does discounting start? Yeah. You know, who's responsible for discounting? And I always say, well, it's sales managers. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, Mike's been almost uniformly and Obviously, their situations are unique. If you give salespeople a lot of you know free reign relative sure. pricing and so on, but but assuming that you know people operating within bounds is yeah extreme discounting or reliance on it. For me, what I've seen it starts with the managers. Yeah. I, I have my theory is it's you know it's a theory of surplus, mm. and the surplus there's a surplus of unretired quota. <laughs> Yeah, so it's like if you run a, a store and you've got right. inventory on the shelves at the end of the month, what do you do? Discount it, you get it out of the Discount door, it, yeah. right, to get it off the shelves. Well, in this case, what's on the shelves is unretired quota. And so the managers look at it and say, well, I've got a surplus of unretired quota. How do we get rid of that? Discount it. We get rid of it. Discount. Absolutely. I mean, I think you can even, yeah. to not only agree with you, but to go a step further, then you can also look at those organizations, not only the sales manager, but then you look... 
who put together the comp package, uh, which, you know, and this, for, so for example, I've seen organizations where the salespeople aren't really dinged for discounting, right? Meaning they're going to make just as much money either way, right? Which, right, the comp's not based on right, right. gross profit. So if you think about that, it, yeah. even then, whoever's in charge of that comp package design, which could be, you know, uh, everywhere from VP of sales on up, you know, they're, they're, they're creating the structure, right? I mean, I think one, one of the things that's been fascinating, and I know that both you and I love uh, reading extensively in non-sales literature, uh, but, you know, mm-hmm. right. one of the things that's come out of uh, behavioral psychology, for example, last 20 or 30 years, is the importance of context, right? Like, we don't make decisions just based on our own personal, you know, mental framework. It's, you know, the, the environment we, we live in. It's, you know, peer pressure is a thing or, right. Right. you know, uh, the, the fascinating book Nudge, you know, where they talk about like how you, stru- right. yeah, no, like how you structure the environment. How you structure your sales environment will actually determine what your salespeople do mm-hmm. <laughs> and how they act. Uh, so it's, I, I think you're exactly right. It's not, this, it's easy to blame the frontline individual contributor, but there's a reason they're doing what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, that's the context, right? That they operate it. Absolutely. Well, and so, but for me, and interesting your thought on this is, is so I think that that because um, I'm just fascinated, have been for a long time about this idea of of performance and who's responsible for certain levels of performance and so I guess my question for you is is you know to some degree I look at sales managers and this is rough analogy but as having uh, quality control responsibility you know that the that the salespeople that work for them are basically like a okay. product right and that product is an individual who can go out and operate at a certain level in a predictable mm-hmm. fashion Right. And so that's that's really the job of a sales manager. Right? My job is to develop these individuals in such a way and manage them, coach them so that they can predictably achieve a certain level of performance, that being quota. Uh, so if you have and we see the latest report on this topic, I think it was Bravado put out something earlier this year. Forty six percent of sellers mm-hmm. don't make quota or only forty six percent do make quota. Excuse me. So a minority. So isn't that really sort of a quality control issue, this gap between, I mean, if you were a, a factory manager and your job was to make widgets that operate at a certain level of predictable performance, uh, how long would you last if you could only, only 46% of what you manufactured met, it, right. met spec? So I think the... The point being is, shouldn't there be more, a, almost like a quality control aspect to this that we apply to sales management and that I don't see that emphasis i see you know either making it or not and we're going to try to coach you up but it's it seems like we have a different lens we could look at things through that might help managers well <laughs> i think we changed our comp that would help as well <laughs> right uh I, well well no i think that i I, th- I think i think you could solve the issue largely solve the issue of of reps not making quota if a substantial portion of a sales manager's Variable compensation was based on the number of their sellers that oh, achieved yeah. quota. I agree. So, like, if I said, yeah, and not a percentage, but like, if you were to pay a, a manager, this is my latest idea on this. Pay a manager. Let's say they had ten sellers, and just hypothetical example is they would get a flat fee for each one that achieved quota. So, like, yeah, thousand right, bucks, right, two thousand right. bucks. Not a just, percentage, but a flat fee just per yes seller. Yes or no? Do they hit quota? Yeah, and you you get a bonus for each one. If the, I bet you, I'll bet you, I'll bet you, we'd see instantaneous changes in terms of the percentage of sellers that hit quota. Because what happened is then sales managers would go to their bosses and say, "Look, conversation. Let's talk about our numbers." <laughs> let's actually right? hear what that quote that what yeah. that quota number actually is becomes. What it is absolutely is right because I think a good chunk of the fact that why reps aren't making quotas is they're set arbitrarily sure. high, right? And 
but this leads to sort of feeds into this this vicious cycle of where if we have such a large percentage of sellers aren't hitting quota are we basically dooming them to almost never hitting quota because what we're saying is you know, the way human psychology works is how do you build confidence in people? Well, you let them experience some success. And once people have experienced success, my experience has been, I think the research show, they want to keep continuing success, you know, experiencing right. success. So we do a huge disservice to, to people. I've had this conversation with numerous sales leaders is, yeah, when you're starting off is make sure that people are going to crush right. it the first year or two, right? Even if they have lower numbers, even if their their targets are more achievable, make sure that that you put them in a position where they experience the success. Because if they do, then they're going to be hungry for more success, and so, and you can continue to grow right. their numbers and so on. Uh, but it's just like, okay, we want to change that equation about percentage of reps hitting quotas. Yeah, there's things we could do. Change the manager's comp to make sure they did. I actually think you'd have to change the manager's, not only their comp, but I, th so interestingly enough, your idea about quality control and, you know, managers being responsible for quality control. I actually think that that is the current model and that's actually the challenge. Because what I think for a lot of sales organizations, they started to look as a salesperson, not as a salesperson. There's like, hey, there's, there's you know, X number of sales seats we, we slot a cog in there. They should be able to follow some program. We're going to give them X number of leads or, you know, however they're going to develop their pipeline and they should hit this percentage and, you know, we'll get X amount of revenue from them. So, Hey, if we want to, you know, increase revenue, we either have to have more headcount or, you know, we're just going to you know, double quota for them. But then, you know, as a sales manager, they're just looking at it as a, how do I, optimize this machine versus how do I actually grow the success of this individual, right? So I, I would almost say that that's, that's what's created this mentality where be salesy, follow the program, here's the seven steps. Um, and, and I also think, by the way, when you're talking about quality control, what you're really just saying is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's the idea of actually having a, uh, a more, um, you know, kind of like oversight into the success of the individuals who are working for you, right? Exactly, because you wouldn't, <laughs> I think if, if, and again, not to be too harsh about sales managers, because you and I both yeah, yeah, been through that right. role <laughs> in multiple levels and so on, is, but is that, that, that if frontline managers end up the chain, right, yeah. they'll start there and build up, if you really cared about the individual, would you, wouldn't you change what, you do, what you're doing? And <laughs> I can't talk today. Wouldn't you change what you're doing in order to ensure that a higher fraction of your reps actually hit the number? For me, that was hugely important. I wanted to have everybody, if possible, which wasn't always possible, to be right. successful, right? And... Yeah, and this is, I don't think managers, oftentimes, I think increasingly, is to your point, precisely about people being sort of interchangeable cogs in a machine, uh, in certain industry segments, yeah, have not looked Which at it that way. Yeah, I use the expression for us, you know, people are sort of <laughs> cannon fodder. Um which, which is, you know, unfortunate case. Yeah. I think and it's also true. unfortunate too, because if you, if we want to take this beyond just a sales role, I mean, we all know turnover is expensive, right? So if if leadership outside of sales leadership is going, hey, we want to make sure we're bringing in revenue, we want to minimize costs, like like churning and burning salespeople is not the way to do it. To, to something you just said, like even if you're small or small, starting them with a smaller, you know, quote of that first six months, that first year. I mean, I've always said, and I I don't know what you'd say about this, but I think it takes six months to a year to actually learn a sales role. Right, this idea that you can just even if you've got sales skills, it, oh, it takes. Yeah. So being able to like look some in the eye and say, it's still, it's still, it's still yeah. an apprenticeship. I think this is the part 100%. that that yeah, there's 
certain schools have thought about this is, yeah, we can onboard people in six weeks. They'll be productive. And so on. it's like, you know, you're learning a trade. You don't, no one learns a trade. And certainly, and the, and the thing, of it, <laughs> again, I'm wandering here. The thing is that, that people talk about being, you know, onboarding, they get to quote unquote full productivity within this fixed period of time, six weeks, right. 90 days, whatever. Again, just an illusion. People don't. Well, well we already know that only uh, 54% uh, or 54% don't ever right hit full productivity. Yeah. So yeah, but you know, right. it's it sounds sexy. It sounds sexy to say, hey, in 90 days, you're going to have these sales reps up and running. Um, but yeah, to your point, it's just not true. It'd be, I th it, it would be scary for, I think, a lot of organizations to say, Hey, you know what? We're gonna we're gonna bring on X number of new people, and uh, we're gonna invest in them because we want them to you know be long term. We're we're gonna realize a profit on the back end by not turning over you know as many people, right? And so we're gonna commit to them for a year. Well, I read right and or whatever it is, and be like, let's help them be successful. And yeah, yeah, what? I just remember reading about this uh, program. I think it was in, uh, is that a university somewhere? I forget where it was, but basically they are, maybe it's even at high school level. I'm trying to remember this exact article. It was about working with kids coming from, you know, underprivileged backgrounds that were going to maybe struggle academically uh, initially because they're in a more competitive environment and so on. And, and they had this, this program, this school, and again, I'm blanking on the exact details, but I remember they, they had this, this program, like, I think they called it okay. Freshman on Track. And what they did is just made sure that the freshmen stayed on track, on a certain track, which they had def you know, defined as sort of this minimal level of performance, but it was more than minimum. I mean, it was something that was going to help make sure that they learned what they needed to learn uh, didn't fall behind academically, picked up the skills they needed. And yes, it was, you know, not super high level, but it was made sure they were on track, right? So no one was left behind. And I was reading about this thinking, oh, this is a brilliant idea in terms of sales. It's instead of the way we do things now, we, you know, 90 days, six weeks, whatever, we throw people to the wolves, is say, no, first year, everybody, super nurturing program, right? And not everybody has to make it sink or swim. And we're going to have this, you know, salesperson on track mm. program. We're going to ensure that, yeah, no one's left behind. I, you just made me think of, you know, the 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 sales training program that for those of us of a certain age is still kind of regarded as like one of the top. I mean, that was Xerox back in the day, and Xerox was known for having a mm -hmm. two year, <laughs> two year training apprenticeship program where like you basically went out as as a new as a, a newbie and you were paired with an experienced mm -hmm. uh, for part of it you were paired with an experienced salesperson and you literally went out with them for you know whatever it was six months or something like that as part of this whole program because they're like yeah you got to learn you got to learn a bunch there's obviously a technical side of it and that's and yes that's obviously quite an investment on xerox's part but uh we all they did well enough that Xerox is, is the brand name became the name for the process. They did okay there, for themselves, right? right? Yeah, but yeah. I, I think you're you're Absolutely. spot on, and it's it, it does. I think it takes a mindset shift, and I think the ones the, the organizations that we see on a sales side that are already doing it. To your point, it's coming from leadership, right? It's coming from the top where they're like, "Hey, we're committed to to having people where we're not having crazy turnover. We're we're trying to find it." people who want to have a home here. So unfortunately, I don't think we can fix all that yeah, with a wave of a wand, but. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, maybe we'll try. <laughs> Do you want? I, I don't know, my, my kid's playroom, there's probably one buried there somewhere. <laughs> you know, I think, didn't you have a Harry Potter wand? I thought you did. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> don't talk about that, he says. Uh, all right, David, great always to have you on the show. I always. never know what we're going to talk about, and I love our conversations. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I'm not sure I did today either. <laughs> One of those days, you know. But, uh, yeah, no, it's fantastic. And so uh, enjoy. I will. Ferris John. For sure.
Those days go by very quickly, as you know. I do. Right? As I say, the, the days are, are uh, long, but the, the years are short. The days are long, but the years are short. So. Uh, oh, I like that. Yeah. No, I have very distinct memories with, with my eldest, who's, who's my business partner. Uh, he was uh, yeah, probably less than, certainly less than a year. Uh, was still an infant, wasn't toddling around yet. And yeah, I used to love laying on the couch on a Sunday afternoon, watching a football game and falling asleep in front of the football game with him with nice. me on the couch. Nice. <laughs> it was just like, <laughs> right? That cuddly, you, just, you miss that cuddle. You know, I'm trying to cut, I, you know, the, the cuddles, I've been told, do not Capture laugh. Those. So I'm going to get as many cuddles as I can. Yeah, yeah, they, they don't last. And it's, it's uh, yeah, you think as, again, as a parent, now we're, <laughs> We're jonesing for grandkids, right? But yeah, as a parent, you're, you're, uh, yeah, the moment where you normally walk across the street holding your kid's hand, then, yeah, you do it. Yeah. And they're like, nah, yeah. <laughs> your right, hand right. away. <laughs> I'm going to soak it all up right now for sure. Right. Enjoy Thank it for you. sure, right? All right. Well, have a great weekend and uh, we'll talk great. to you soon. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, my friend, David J.P. Fisher, D. Fish, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.